Hello, I'm Angus Scott and this is The Debrief. The transfer window is closed. The first international break is over. We are back in the thick of things. But one thing hasn't changed. Manchester United. Still losing, still troubled and still up for sale. Are the Glazers really going to sell the club? Or is this just a massive ruse, some free publicity, some self-aggrandization for the unpopular family running the club? Well, that's our debate today. What on earth is going on at Old Trafford? Of course, Fabrizio Romano will also be giving us the latest from his red-hot phone, so stand by for that. And Ben Jacobs, as ever, is with me. All transfer windows are now closed, Ben, so you've got your takeover hat on now. (laughs) Yes, and I've had a bit more sleep as well. Not enough sleep, though, to understand self-what starting the podcast. I think I need a thesaurus if I'm going to keep up with you. I, yeah, I, I don't know what it was. I had to look it up myself, but I think it's aggrandization. I still can't say it. Anyway, I'm also pleased to say that Bloomberg's David Hellier, uh, who's a business reporter, is here and he's all over the football takeover world. David, welcome to the debrief. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Well, tell us, um, David, what, what is your uh, feeling about what has been going on over the last nine months or so? Are the, are the Glazers really wanting to sell the club? Um, I mean, good question. I mean, I suppose we, we have to say which which Glazers and, um, um, you know, there, there are six of them. And I think um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the complexities of the whole deal is that they're not necessarily united in what they want. Um, but um, I, I'm still being told even, you know, this morning that um, the, the, the process is going on. Uh, Rain, the bank that's selling uh, Man United or t- attempting to sell it is, um, you know, briefing that, that the process is definitely still going on. Uh, that The club hasn't been taken off the market uh, as was reported a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I do think, I, I, I think, um, I mean, to a certain extent, rain is the cause of a lot of this uh, uh, delay, I think, because right at the beginning, um, they they managed to persuade the Glazers to put the um, United up for sale by saying, I mean, they, these were different times and that, you know, Chelsea had just been sold and United's the biggest club in the, in, you know, possibly in the world. They managed to persuade the Glazers that they could quite easily get them £6 billion for equity holding um, and that, you know, there was going to be a stream of bidders like there were for Chelsea. And of course, it hasn't quite turned out like that. Um, there is demand that, you know, United, there's only one United and um, uh, there are two potential buyers at least. But it's, it's you know, it's more complicated than, than, than they thought to get this £6 billion. And I think um, uh, we're not there yet in terms of um, the bidders haven't bid as high as the Glazers want. Um, and and so that's kind of exacerbating the, you know, the the, the the differences that there are within the Glazer family. So is that the holdup? Do you feel is it a price that's the biggest holdup here? I, I mean, I that's what I'm strongly told um, by you know lots of different sources that uh, um, you know they want a price which is nearer to the six billion uh, than either the. Um, uh, the Qataris or, or Jim Ratcliffe's, can, you know, group can, uh, you know, is willing to go to at the moment. Ben, the the the, the two main players they're stalling then at the, this six billion pound figure, whether it's pounds or dollars that the Glazers want. 
yeah, I think what we've had is a series of bids and Rain Group's role is not to mediate or ultimately help the groups in any way. It's to get the highest possible price for the Glazer family. So I think we have to look at what's happening, as David alluded to, in two different ways. Number one, the Glazers are still determined sellers, but number two, for the right price. And when you don't get the right price, which hasn't happened to date, you have a scenario where the S in Glazers becomes highly important because suddenly they're six siblings and they're not as united as they would be if they were to get the right price. Now, what that right price is, is the crux of this entire debate, because I think the process started, to my understanding, with a promise, almost in inverted commas, of somewhere, as David alludes to, of around £6 billion or $7 billion is actually the number that I've personally heard. And you enter into the process in light of Chelsea, hoping to get that. You don't get it. And then Rain's job is to create competitive tension to try and raise the bids, raise the price, because otherwise the Glazers may choose to move in a different direction. And that different direction might be staying for longer. It might be trying to do a more flexible deal and structure with Sir Jim Ratcliffe. It might be taking minority investment, or it might be ultimately a no sale and putting the club on the market at a future date when the Glazers then feel like the club will be worth more. So I still think that for all of the drama and for all of the length so far that this saga has taken, it is still quite simple, frustrating, but simple, because if the right numbers hit, six Glazers want to sell. If the right number isn't hit, that's when we get some lack of unity, and that's where we're at at the moment. Uh, David, from your experience, we'll say we're looking at n- nine months, if that is the figure that that this club has been up for sale. In in big business terms, this I mean, obviously, it's a huge takeover. Is this an ordinary amount of time, or is this being stretched out? Um, I mean, I, I think it, I mean it's not it's not extraordinary. I mean, there are there are deals that go into you know months, and then there's sort of um, you know monopolies commission you know reviews, and um, there, there's all sorts of holdups. But the difference here is this is being played out. Um, you know, it's being played out on the front pages of newspapers, on the you know the the top of TV broadcasts sometimes, um, or or just you know, via fan channels. And um, there's just so much noise about it that it, I think it seems longer than it actually is. I think sometimes with a with an industrial deal, um, you know, it would go quiet for a few months and um, and, and you wouldn't really hear about it. And then, and, and, and then uh, it, you know, things would take their course, the reviews would be done, Clearances would be given, um, and and then and then um, you know you'd, you'd have a deal completed in nine ten months, but you wouldn't think, wow, that just took so long. Um, so I think I think it's all you know the delays have all been amplified. It's it's like um, you know we, we've got a, a decision where you know we've got a deadline and, and the deadline passes and you expect a decision and, and then it's almost like we've got a VAR. Um, process going on you know it's all being reviewed and and looked at several times and you know the the the, the joyous expectation of a, a resolution is, is taken away from you um uh, var when, when, is bad but th- but this is the worst var <laughs> decision, isn't it? <laughs> this goes on for months yeah yeah um, so i i think I, I don't think it's extra extraordinarily long but 
Um, it is it is long, and and I mean for what seems you know I mean people keep saying to me the bankers keep it's an extraordinarily complex process. So I'm, I'm not sure it is any more complex than um, you know than other industrial takeovers, but um, uh, you know but. But but there are issues that make it very dif- difficult. I mean, the, the main one being the six sellers rather than one united seller, and and you've got a you've got a payer, you've got a buyer that um, in Qataris that one assumes has got the money. It's not like they haven't got the money. I, I assume, although we don't know for sure, um, you know, but doesn't really want to pay as much as the Glazers want. And then you've got another another buyer that probably hasn't easily got the money. Uh, who is very disciplined uh, through necessity, um, who's also come up with a structure that isn't, um, you know, it's not attractive to all the shareholders in Manchester United. So you then have, um, you know, Ratcliffe is a bit constrained by uh, the fact that a number of shareholders in Man United have threatened uh, to sue the board if uh, if they recommend his bid um, because it, it doesn't offer them uh, a way, an exit for their shareholdings. Um, yeah. So, um, in a sense, rain doesn't have the tension of having two bidders bidding against each other. There's, you know, at the moment, um, and, you know, unless Ratcliffe changes his structure, they they haven't got that tension. So I think, I mean, to me, that's why. I mean, I don't know exactly how that um, story in the, in the in the mail the other day came to pass. Um, you know, but I suspect that it's also it 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 does. Um, it does increase the tension a bit, which is which is altogether missing at the moment. Um, by saying, you know, if we don't get what we, what we want, we'll take it off the market altogether. And by the way, in a few years' time, it's going to be worth ten billion. Um, that kind of does create a little bit of tension, which has been absent. Yeah, I think the two bids are very different, like you say. So it's been difficult for Ren Group to create competitive tension. I think the other thing is that a lot of fans are looking at the Chelsea sale, which was handled by Ren Group, and they feel like somehow it should be as quick as that. But we shouldn't forget that was under extraordinary circumstances. It had to be a super speed sale because Chelsea's license was ultimately expiring and Roman Abramovich had no control over that process or very little, whereas the Glazers can be as slow or as fast as they like. But David, just briefly before we go to Fabrizio, I want to get your take as a financial journalist specifically on the club being listed on the New York Stock Exchange, because what we've seen throughout the process is a lot of people, fans and media in particular, react to the stock market either surging or diving based upon stories in the media or indications within the industry that something is happening. And most recently, after those reports that the Glazers might not sell, we saw a record fall for a single day. The market value of the club lost over 550 million. The share price fell by 21% at one point during the day, and in the end, it had dipped by 18%. Can we read anything into this, or ultimately, do those playing the stock market know very little of what's actually going on behind the scenes? Um, I I mean, I would say that um, it's it's quite a a negative... um, um, chain of events for you know football clubs that want to be listed on on the stock market and it's generally i mean you know there there was a wave of them that were listed in the 90s um and aside from man united and juventus and uh, dortmund there are very few clubs that are 
listed. And I think one of the problems is that um, uh, they're not really that suitable to be to be publicly listed companies in many ways. Um, and I because I think they attract. Um, you know, unsophisticated investors, not not only unsophisticated investors, obviously some very sophisticated investors there, but, you know, there's a, a, a quite a, a high potential for people to um, lose money without really, know, you know, um, without really knowing what they're getting it themselves into. Um, and um, so I, th- I think this, is, this has been a fairly um, challenging affair for the listing authorities in New York um doesn't really to me doesn't really um come across as a as 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 a positive thing for uh new york listings environment um that such um you know such sort of variations of share price and and value can happen in 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 a day or less than that um on a on a sort of rumor um um so um whether whether investors really know what uh, much about it and how sophisticated they are, I mean, some are. You know, some of the you know very sophisticated hedge funds. Um, but um, again, I mean, I, th- I think um, with football clubs, I mean, there's so much interest, you know, amongst uh, fans and um, such an appetite in, in the media and on fan channels and dare I say on podcasts as well that you know. Um, Whatever we say, I mean, Rio Ferdinand said something, and I think it led to a, uh, a, a big movement in the share price. Um, I'm, I'm not sure he had very, you know, precise financial information, but but it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult issue really for the regulators and and for the club itself. Um, you, you were talking about the 1990s there, there David, when when people got uh, involved, and I remember your club Chelsea being listed, and I mm. bought. I bought some shares in Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea Village or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chuck, that's it. Chelsea Village when Ken Bates was there. And um, I can remember ringing up Ken one day and uh, asking for an interview because we we needed an interview on something when I was working in, in, in London, in London tonight I was working on at the time. And he flatly said no. And I said, yeah, but I'm a shareholder, Ken. And he said, I don't give a toss if you're a shareholder or not. So it didn't serve me very well. Um, anyway, but I, I, yeah, I, I get what you mean. Um, these, these, these inexperienced um, investors, albeit we didn't have a large percentage of Chelsea Village at the time. Uh, with that in mind, um, people doing uh, business in um, uh, transfer markets and and likewise. Let's bring in uh, Fabrizio Romano at this stage because we know that Manchester United were very busy uh, during that transfer window and we'll get uh, Fab's take on, on what's been going on at Old Trafford now. Fabrizio, thanks as ever for joining us. We're talking Manchester United this week. What's your latest feeling about the takeover? My feeling is that at the moment, all the parties involved don't want to comment about that because, honestly, what happened is really still surprising. We remember the feeling from all parties about things being uh, advanced in February, in March, in April, in May. So the expectation was to complete this takeover before the beginning of the summer transfer window, and we are still at the same point. So all parties are now nervous. The situation is not that easy. And so all the parties that were commenting, like in February, March, April, with many briefs and updates now they don't want to comment about that and I think it's probably the best news for Manchester United fans to keep things quite as quiet as possible around this process seeing how slow was that in the in the past few months so at the moment nothing imminent nothing confirmed but the feeling of sources is that things are still happening behind those behind behind the scenes of this story so 
let's see at the moment again nothing uh, nothing concrete and all parties want to keep things uh, quiet and secret but again the feeling is that there is still uh, something going on behind the scenes was there anything in the window that was overshadowed by what the glazers are doing maybe players didn't want to go to united or or were fine by it but anything that overshadowed the transfer market for united Oh, I think, look, uh, maybe with the takeover, they had a chance to go for superstars players. For example, I remember before the summer transfer window, we had many links with players like Harry Kane or uh, Victor Oziman. These kind of players were linked with Manchester United. And at the end, it was not possible for May United because of the financial situation to go and sign players worth more than 100, 110 million euros, like in the case of Harry Kane. And for Oziman, it was probably 150 million euros. So... Probably that was the, the issue. I remember that before the summer transfer window, there were links for with that kind of players. But then the reality is that Man United had to go for, for different kind of players with different kind of strategy because of the financial situation and also because of the financial for play. So I think it was just about that. I, I don't have any news about players rejecting Man United because of the of the takeover. Uh, I think this is something that happens in football to have a potential change of ownership. But in this case, I think the issue was just with uh, superstars players. But at the end, what I can say is that Man United are very happy with the summer transfer window they had. They signed the players they wanted, and so they didn't see an issue about that, honestly. So they're happy with someone like Rasmus Hoyland, who, look, has now made his debut, but he's not in the same class as the you know, Ossiman that you mentioned or Harry Kane. No, they're very happy with him. They're very happy with him because they believe that the potential of Rasmus Hoylund is to arrive at that level, at the level of super strikers. So he's a very young guy. He had just one season in Serie A with Atalanta and he was coming from Sturgrad. So it will take time. And the message from Manchester United and from Eriton Hag also to the teammates when he joined the club was something like, we have to wait for him to give him time because the potential is incredible. But uh, it's something different to play with Manchester United compared to Atalanta or Stuttgart with all the respect. So it's completely different environment, pressure, and they know that, but they're very happy with him. They believe that he's a very serious guy, professional guy, again, with an incredible talent. And honestly, they were very happy also with his debut. He was a bit unlucky with the goal disallowed and also uh, in some in some moments of the game. But again, they believe he's the perfect player also for the idea of Eriton Hag to have that kind of striker fast who can help also in uh, being an hard worker with the team so they believe that they got a very very good player let's move away from old trafford um uh, and some deals that have gone through latterly uh verratti draxler to al Ahly in, in qatar now clearly the qatar link between the two clubs Yes, um, this is very clear, but at the same time, I think the fee for Marco Verratti is a very normal fee. Uh, to pay 45 million euros for one of the best midfielders in Europe is something absolutely normal. I'm still surprised that uh, top European clubs didn't go for Marco Verratti because they had the opportunity mm -hmm. to go for him. And I see some midfielders around Europe were not at the level of players like Marco Verratti, so they probably needed that kind of player, but... It could be about the salary. He had a very good salary at Paris Saint-Germain, and so probably for many European clubs, it's complicated to offer that kind of salary with financial for play for a player who is not that young. So probably that was the issue, but PSG believed that €45 million Euros is a very 
normal fee for a player like Marco Verratti with the quality of Marco Verratti and he's not that old so they believe that this is a very a very normal fee and for Julian Draxler it was an opportunity to leave Paris Saint-Germain honestly he was desperate because this summer there were not so many options for him after a complicated season at Benfica so this opportunity to go to, to Qatar the deal was signed today in the morning yesterday they agreed on the final terms he completed the medical test uh, in the morning today he completed the agreement in terms of signing the contracts and so for Paris Saint-Germain was crucial to get rid of as many players as possible this summer and they made it happen. Yes, Verratti only 30, Draxler uh, 29, still a lot of football left in those two. Okay, Chelsea struggling for goals. Um, Fab, what do you think? Do you think they'll move for a striker in January? It's too early, honestly. Uh, speaking to, to Chelsea when they are asking about that, obviously I think it's very normal for them to say that their focus is on the current squad is more than three months, so they want to uh, keep things quiet around the squad. They want to protect also Nicolas Jackson, who had a very good preseason, but then in Premier League is not the same. And so they want to back him, they trust him. And the idea of Chelsea is to protect Nico Jackson because they know that probably with Christopher Nkunku in the preseason, uh, in the initial games of the preseason, he was performing a super lever because having a player like Kunku was crucial also for him to help with the movements, to bring more quality, different kind of balls available for uh, for Jackson in the in the box. So that's why they believe that once Christopher Kunku will be back, the whole situation, the attacking players is going to be different because he was the crucial player for Mauricio Pochettino and so at the moment they're not commenting about any striker opportunity they had the chance to sign some strikers in the summer like Dujan Vlaovic but Chelsea were never 100% convinced about going for a traditional number nine so I think they will keep protecting that idea at least for the next one two months and then we will see what they decide at the end of November beginning of December but at the moment Chelsea are not actively working on a new striker because they want to protect the squad they have. And Ivan Tony may be a, a name that, that that would come up in Chelsea conversations. There are other clubs looking at him as well. Yes, I think it's normal when you have this kind of opportunity, and I think Tony is going to leave Brentford in 2024. Under uh, percent, so that's the feeling of those close to him. Let's see if it's going to be January or summer transfer window, depending on the proposals. But the player is going to leave and is going to try a different experience. So Chelsea have an interest, but they've always been following this player and tracking this player. There are also other clubs in England, and not just in England. For example, I'm told that some Italian clubs sent uh, multiple times last year their scouts to follow Tony with uh, with Brentford. So. Has always been a player appreciated by many clubs. Of course, England looks like the most uh, likely destination also because he wants to stay in Premier League and continue in Premier League. So Chelsea, yes, but not only Chelsea. But to be honest, at the moment, it's not something advanced or concrete. I see his name always, always linked with many clubs around the, the top six because obviously it's an opportunity. But I think it will take some time to understand uh, which club will go for him with um, proper money and trying to convince Brentford. I think this is going to be probably December, not before December. OK, we've got the Champions League coming right up. Um, looking at some of the sides in that competition, look at Newcastle at the moment. There's always been a, a slight doubt about if their squad is is big enough. Do we expect to see reinforcements come in there? It's a possibility. I think it will depend on what happens with the Champions League group, if they will go to the uh, knockout stages phase or, or not. So uh, if they go to Europa League or not, in that group, you never know what's going to happen. They can win the group or they can be at the last position of the group because it's, a, it's the most difficult group probably in the Champions League this, uh, this season. So at the moment, they are not planning for anything specific. Their main 
focus is now on the new content of Bruno Guimaraes. Uh, they really want to get this new deal done. As I say a few weeks ago, it's really close, but it's not done or completed yet. So they're working on the final details of this Bruno contract. And then for January, I think it will depend if it's going to be Champions League football, Europa League football, how it's going to be the situation also in the domestic cups. These are going to be crucial factors to see if Newcastle will invest in new players or not. But in any case, I'm sure that Newcastle will not go for any panic buy. This is not in their style. They only sign players when they believe that he's under percent the right player for their project. And so this is going to be the way also in the January transfer window. I mean, that's the same for Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. Do we feel that he's got the squad that he wants because we know how difficult it is to defend, well, one, certainly three titles is, is extremely difficult. Is there anything else they need, they feel, to win the Champions League again? I think no. I think they're very happy with the squad they have. They signed Mateus Nunes. They they had the players they wanted, including Jeremy Doku. And Pep Guardiola is very happy with Doku to have a player with that skills, uh, fast player, uh, skillful. So this is what he wanted uh, from the summer transfer window. And of course, he also got Guardiola to help in the defense. So at the moment, they are very happy with the squad they have. And I can guarantee that they are not working on any uh, winter transfer window deal because they believe that the squad is good enough to compete on all the competitions. Then let's see what happens with the injuries let's see what happens also with the Kevin De Bruyne recovery because that is going to be a crucial point to understand what happens at Man City but they believe that in the next months uh, Kevin will be back the squad will be absolutely ready to compete in all competitions Fab as ever it's uh, great that you joined us thanks very much indeed we'll speak to you next week thank you and see you soon thank you ciao Ben, bearing in mind what Fabrizio has, has just said, how do you feel that the takeover or lack of takeover affected their work during the transfer window? Well, I think the uncertainty had a huge effect because let's not forget both Sheikh Jassim and Sir Jim Ratcliffe started this process with a feeling that they could be in either before the end of the season, which sounds crazy now in hindsight, or certainly by the window opening. So a lot of the groups were planning for the summer and thinking if they were going to win, then they'd be able to impact that window. And of course, if Sheikh Jassim had come in and cleared the debt, that would have helped the finances as well. Maybe Manchester United would have been able to spend even more. So you can definitely make an argument that the uncertainty has impacted the window. And yet, if you just look at the finances, Manchester United spent a little bit more healthily than maybe we first anticipated, even though they have to think about financial fair play. So the two things really heading into the window that were most important for Manchester United was qualifying for Champions League football, which they did, and then staying within financial fair play, which they also believe that they did as well. And when you look at the money spent on Rasmus Hoyland and Mason Mount and Andre Anana and Sofian Amrabat coming in as well late in the window, it's a healthy spend. For Manchester United. So I don't think that we can say either of the two groups would have spent dramatically more, but they might have spent differently and they might have managed the situation differently as well in terms of Manchester United's hierarchy, which is another thing. So the aim, for example, of both INEOS and 9-2 Foundation was, and we have to say now that it's past tense, to come in the window to open, the summer's the best transition for a takeover, as we saw with Clear Lake Bowley at Chelsea, to do a 100-day review and then decide on things like a sporting director, a different infrastructure, who might stay, who might go at the club. And all of that means that hypothetically, if either of the groups had been in on day one of the summer transfer window, by the end of it, we might have seen a different story. But still, again, 
within those two key things of Champions League football's the plus. You can spend a bit more. Financial fair play's the negative. It constrains what Manchester United could spend. So I think that fans will feel like Manchester United's mediocre start to the season is somehow linked to the takeover or lack of it at this point. But I do feel like there are some other considerations that would have ultimately constricted a new group coming in as well. And the big one is that financial fair play element. David, how do you feel this resolves itself? Um, I, I, I still think ultimately that the um, Qataris will come up with a bit more money. Um, I mean, that's my, that's my instinct. Um, I think the Glazers are, um, will become increasingly um, pressured to, um, you know, to start on the investment that they need to do in the stadium and the training grounds. Um, I think it's dangerous to keep putting it off. I think there's a sense of drift at the club. Um, internally, there's a lot of pressure on on them, I think, to... Um, you know, to, to, to sell it or to resolve the situation, um, you know, even if that means one or two of them stay in somehow, um, in, in, you know, with a minority shareholding. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's still my instinct. I, I mean, on behalf of the Guitaris, I mean, we, you know, we, we were being told a few weeks ago that um, it, it was very close, but maybe it's not as close as they, they would like. Um, and, that, you know, they're not going to pay as much as the Glazers want. But I think they will, in the end, come up a little bit. I I, I feel with Ratcliffe, I, I don't really feel it happening. But I think, you know, they, they were at pains this morning to say that they're still in it. And, you know, it's always possible. Um, uh, and um, But I, I, th- I think it, it just feels to me as if it will change hands. Within the next, you and yeah, but you and I know. Look, we we know Qatar quite well, and and how they work. And um, you're still very well connected out there. Mm. Uh, We also know that even though they have buckets of cash, which they do, they can be uh, very controlled about the way they spend it. But to get a trophy prize like Manchester United would be huge for them. And is your sense that maybe that they will come in with a little bit extra as well? Well, I think we have to be clear, 92 Foundation have said many times their last bid was their final bid, so it's take it or leave it, but that is part of the games of the process. They said that after their third and fourth bids as well, and they went up once again. So we're now at a situation where both groups are in the same ballpark. It's just that you have 92 Foundation who are slightly north of £5 billion and won 100% of the club, and Ratcliffe's club valuation is similar, but he's obviously paying less if he's successful, because he's not buying 100% of the club and he's being flexible. He's saying to the Glazers, if you want to stay, then great, we can have a staggered or laddered exit. And if you want to go now, he is prepared, to my knowledge, to buy 69% of the shares, which is all of the Glazers' shares, but not all of the football club. But I think with Qatar, what's interesting is just, are they who they say they are? Because if they are linked to ultimately the Emir, if Nasser Al-Khalifi has been involved in some form of discussions, then ultimately this comes from the top. And that is my feeling. And yet we also hear that Sheikh Jassim is a private investor, is a Manchester United fan. So if he's only using his own wealth, then maybe he can't go higher. But if this is a coordinated effort 
from the government down with the blessing of the emir. And it has to be in reality because you don't do anything of this magnitude in Qatar without the emir knowing about it, without Nasser Al-Khalifi being involved as a consultant. Then why haven't they already just paid what it takes to buy the football club? And I think you can come up with a few theories. One is just that it's complicated because the real people doing the deal are distant at this point and will stay distant until they've won. And there's definitely been frustration with Rain Group as to who they're dealing with. I don't think that Sheikh Jassim has been involved in any direct conversations. He didn't turn up in person in Manchester. The Glazers went to Nasser Al-Khalifi. Why? Because they were dealing with intermediaries via Rain Group and it was unclear who 92 Foundation were. So that's a factor maybe slowing things down. And then I think, David, the other thing I wanted to ask you just briefly is whether the collapse of Credit Suisse has had anything to do with this. Could you make an argument, David, that Qatar came to the table with a coordinated effort from the top down? QSI, for example, say they weren't involved, but QIA were definitely involved before they bid in some kind of conversation. So we know that the senior dealmakers involved, but is there a possibility that those same senior deal makers and those same government officials, because of the financial climate, because of the length of time, maybe because they feel the Glazers might not sell, have sort of backed off and left Sheikh Jassim in a little bit of limbo? And could the Credit Suisse collapse have anything to do with that? Yeah, I'm. I'm I mean, I'm, I must admit, I'm not. I'm not aware that 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 has. I mean, uh, uh, one of my colleagues is is, is very well sourced on. Um, you know the deal makers on the Qatari side, and um, I mean he's he's not said that that is a big factor. I think what it, what is a big factor is um, you know the sort of general investment climate, which is which has deteriorated uh, since the Chelsea deal. Um, so that might be playing a little bit of um, might be you know an extra reason why the Qataris are, are, are cautious. Um, and they're not going as high as the, the Glazers feel. I mean, the, the Credit Suisse collapse uh, must play somewhere there, but I don't think it's a sort of, you know, I don't think it's a real impediment. And what, what do you feel, David, in just wrapping up, will happen next? You think your gut feeling is the Qataris will eventually take over. How long a process might this be? What happens next? Um, I mean, I, I hesitate to say, you know, next Friday because I, I, I can't, I, you know, I can't recall how many times I've been told there'll there'll be an announcement on Friday. So um, <laughs> I, I would have thought before Christmas, you know, the next few weeks. I mean, I was always told August, September, nothing much is going to happen. Um, but you know, it still feels very quiet. I must say, um, you know, um, but um, next few weeks, I think. Famous last words. Yeah, yeah. we've heard it once or twice before. Ben, is that your feeling too? There is nothing imminent? Not by takeover standards, no. I think that both groups have effectively in a non-exclusive manner, and that's always been my understanding that the process letters did not offer any exclusive negotiations. So we heard some reports that maybe we would get that. And it can be true, by the way, that a group can try and get that. So those reports are not incorrect in any way, because why wouldn't a group try and get exclusivity? It effectively puts them front of queue to complete the deal. 
but my understanding is that every round of bidding had a process letter. And in that process letter, it made it clear that exclusive negotiations would not be given. So we continue, my feeling is, in this pattern of non-exclusivity with both groups effectively being treated already like a preferred bidder commonly associated with exclusivity. And they'll be put on the brink to complete a deal, to create maximum competitive tension, but also to be ready to go if the Glazers finally give either of the groups or another group a green light. And I think very simply, I would say my gut feeling is just my view, is that it will be Qatar or no sale with Ratcliffe a very clear third. And there's not much to choose from talking to sources between Qatar or no sale. And there won't be unless Qatar go up in terms of their bid. So as David says, scenario one, I feel, will be that finally Qatar pays what it takes. And there's a very realistic chance that that will happen. And then it's the cleanest transaction in takeover terms. And from there, there'll be the new owners of Manchester United Football Club. And time-wise, I wouldn't want to put anything on it. But what I would say is now the summer window is shut, time is a little bit less important. Scenario number two is Qatar stick to their guns. They stay around that £5 billion mark and the Glazers decide to go in a different direction. And I think that that could well be no sale because as David's alluded to, it's very difficult with Ratcliffe and the structure that he's offered to please the Manchester United board. So unless Ratcliffe decides he wants to win at all costs, but he no longer wants control, so he's prepared to invest in a minority sense and maybe hope that over time, a bit like 49ers Enterprises at Leeds, he can go from minority to majority to control. Unless he pivots and moves away from what he's always said, which is control or nothing, it's harder to see how he's going to get a deal done. So I think Qatar or no sale, but at this stage, Qatar are going to have to go higher. Otherwise, we're going to remain in limbo, unfortunately. And I don't think that a lot is going to change. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's three votes um, for Qatar, really, or or nothing at all. I I think that's the only way for the club to go to club to go forward. And I have to say, knowing the way Qatar works, they often come out with the goods in the end. But um, again, we shall see. Uh, that is your football debrief this week. Many thanks to our guest uh, David Hellier from Bloomberg and to Fabrizio Romano. Even when the window is closed, there's plenty of news to discuss with the guru. So he will be here every every week. Uh, my thanks to Ben as well. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back with your debrief next week. <laughs>